Welcome to the Sleepy Cues Podcast, where Linda Schmolowitz and Jessica Suiki will share answers to all your questions related to your children's sleep and parenting of young children. We are both certified gentle sleep coaches. Thanks for tuning in to hear the answers to the many questions that come up with the families we work with. Hi, welcome to the Sleepy Cues Podcast. So today, Jess and I are both here, and we're going to be interviewing a colleague of ours named McCall Gordon, and we're going to let her introduce herself um, and tell you a little bit about who she is and how she works with families, but also her specific area of expertise, because she works with some really intense, really fiery, as she would describe them, live wires. She's going to talk to us today about temperament and children who have more intense temperaments and what that means for their sleep. And then maybe also get into a little bit about the research that is done on children and sleep and sleep training, because she's also an expert in the area of research. So enjoy today's episode. So we wanted to welcome McCall Gordon. Thanks for joining us, McCall. So excited to be here. So we just wanted to start off by having you introduce yourself a little bit. If you could share with us your professional background, and we know you're also a gentle sleep coach, but also you have a little bit of a specialized focus of yep. you know, the type of client that you work with, and also maybe a little bit about how you ended up having that specialized focus, because I know yeah, there's some history right. there. <laughs> A little bit of history. Yes. So hi, I'm McCall Gordon. I've been a gentle sleep coach now for, I think, five and a half years. I am uh, a researcher and I also teach in the graduate counseling psychology program at Antioch University, Seattle. I teach all of their research classes to therapists in training. Um, How did I come to this? Well, (laughs) how long do you have? So my children are now young adults, so they're 25 and 27. And back then, you know, it was a whole whole different world. The the internet was just getting started. So it was all about magazines and books. And I pretty much knew from the minute my daughter was born, my first child was born, like there was something not quite like I expected, right? She was way more alert, slept almost never as a newborn, had colic, was just always on and engaged and going. And, you know, I just didn't know which end was up most of the time. And of course, at that time, sleep advice was either cry it out or gut it out. And I chose the latter and I was tired. (laughs) Most of the time I was pretty almost like on the ragged edge of, of mental health. And as I went forward, I just realized that there just wasn't a lot about these kids. And it's a real, a different path. It's a really, really different path. If you have a more alert, intense child, it's a real different road. So it led me to really start working on sleep because these are the kids who don't sleep and typical sleep training doesn't work for them. So these parents are really kind of in trouble. So that's, that's what kind of why I started focusing on them. And the more that I learned, the more I did, the, the more I realized that this was a really huge need. So happy to be talking about it. And I feel like there's not a lot out there about temperament and how that really plays into who your child is. I always tell parents, like you get who you're given and you don't get to make a choice about that. Yeah. And so now you have to figure out, well, what do you do when you have this child who has a very intense temperament? 
Yeah. Well, and I think so much, I mean, I would say virtually all of the parenting advice out there is on the parent. So, so many people I hear go, well, you know, temperament, there's nature and nurture, but it's really mostly nurture. And I'm like, nah, it's really kind of not, it's really kind of not, you know, and we can talk about this too more, but you know, can the, can the caregiving environment influence temperament? Sure. Of course. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like my daughter hit me like a tidal wave. Like there was no way. I mean, all I could do would be to keep up with her. It had, I felt like it had nothing to do with me, like nothing. Uh, all I could do was kind of get out of the way as best I could from, cause she was such a strong and still is a very strong personality. There's almost nothing out there about the influence of temperament on child rearing. And even the research on it is pretty, uh, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a fan technically of a lot of the temperament research. Um, and we can maybe talk a little bit about that because I think a lot of my work involves understanding that there are huge challenges to these kiddos, but the challenges are just the external kind of outcome of some really profound abilities and strengths. And I think without acknowledging the positive stuff, if all you're doing is focusing on the negative stuff, you're going to want to jump off a bridge, right? So, um, so understanding that the difficult pieces are, are just the like byproduct of these underlying skills, I think would help parents cope a little bit better. And on that note, you know, the lack of information out there and focusing more on the parent and not on the child, can you explain to us or define to us a little bit more about what temperament is yes. and how it relates to baby sleep? Yes, totally. So temperament, I, I say is a hardwired system. Hardwired means you come in with it. It's virtually genetic and they've found a lot of genetic components to certain temperament traits. It's a hardwired system for taking in, detecting, processing, and responding to external and internal stimuli. So kiddos, there are some kids, a lot of them who are pretty easygoing, takes a lot to disrupt them. They let stuff roll off their back, things happen, and they kind of move through it. That's most kids. They, they kind of adapt pretty well. The kids we're talking about detect even smaller signals from inside and outside. They uh, respond to them more strongly, and then they react more strongly to smaller bits of information. So these are the kids that just every little thing is a big deal for them. There's a lot of, a lot of emotional stuff that happens with them. Now, temperament also can be, I, I call it innies and outies. So there are some kids who are outward with their reactions. They're extroverted, they're engaged, they're alert, they're taking stuff in. They tend to be kind of externally intense. You can also have, have kids that come under the umbrella of highly sensitive children. And we're talking about them as well. They just take their intensity and they go inward. So they, they get overwhelmed and they kind of shut down or they hang back. So these are the kids that may look like they call them cautious or slow to warm up, takes them a while to come around. That's from being overwhelmed. So it's the same, same kind of baseline idea. And they just go in kind of two different directions. If that makes sense. 
And how do you see a child's intense temperament play out with regard to sleep? <laughs> how does it not? Right. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. The more I do this work the, and talk to so many parents, the more I'm starting to realize that if you have a pretty easygoing kid, I never hear from you. I just don't. I'm starting to really think that temperament, a more alert, intense, sensitive temperament is the dividing line between kiddos who sleep and kiddos who don't. Or between, I should say, between sleep methods that work easily for people and sleep methods that don't. I mean, I think as coaches, we tend to see people who have tried all the other stuff or have tried some other things and say, it doesn't work. Now, granted, there's a bunch of reasons why they don't work, but a lot of times these methods don't work for these children who are more intense. So if we think about this system for processing information, let's think about what it takes to go to sleep. You have to be willing to turn away from the waking world, right? You have to be willing to disconnect from what you're doing. You have to be able to detect that you're tired, right? You have to understand like, oh, I feel sleepy. And then you have to be able to get comfortable enough to go to sleep. Every single one of those steps is a huge challenge for these kids, these more alert kids that I call live wires. They don't want to disengage from the world because they just, these are the kids that parents will say, it's like, she's got FOMO, like fear of missing out, right? She just doesn't have the time to go to sleep, right? She just isn't interested. She'd rather be in the world. Okay. So number strike number one, they don't want to shut down and go to sleep Two, They don't know they're sleepy. They don't have the sense of being tired. And a lot of times because they, you know, parents have been watching for their cues that do not exist (laughs) for these kids. Sleepy cues do not exist. So now they're overtired. They're wired. They don't realize they're sleepy. And then when the parent tries to put them to sleep, the sensory sensitivity, the alertness, the engagement, the difficulty with transition, all those things come to play. So, so temperament can make every single one of these steps a lot harder. I mean, or impossible, I would say in some situations. The way you define it reminds me a lot of sensory processing disorder. Similar, different. Yep. Um, in fact, they're, they're starting to think that they, and they call it, they actually call it sensory processing sensitivity, which is so it, that's separate from the, the disorder, of course, would be on the far end, right? These kids, all, almost all of them have sensory sensitivities. I read a couple of things that are starting to suggest that sensory processing sensitivity is at the heart of all of it, right? Because if you think about it, a sensory processing sensitivity means that you are detecting small shifts, smaller bits of tactile, auditory, visual, vestibular information. You're, you're more tuned into them. And so it's really easy to get overwhelmed by them. It's easy to get distracted by them. I honestly think things like ADHD, they're going to start seeing it as sensory processing. Sensory processing plus some intelligence factors. Because there, so there's also, and we can talk about this too, overlaps between kids who are sensitive, intense, alert, perceptive, and some higher levels of intelligence as well. Like the, it's like, it's like having a brain that's just too big for their little bodies. Yeah. Too big, too active. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
I've seen these kids who are super alert, at, you know, when they're little and then they, you know, are reading at three years old. I mean, they're, they're just, they're, they're really bright. And yeah. that makes sense. If you're paying attention to so many little things yeah. that, you know, you're just, you're going to be a little bit smarter. <laughs> well, that's what I, I'm saying. It's like, they're taking in more information per unit of time, right? right? They're just taking it in. So they're open. It's like their channels are open again. That's got some amazingly powerful things. Like you're right. They're taking in information on the downside. They have virtually no capacity to manage that. They don't, they, my daughter did not have a gate that closed on her brain. I remember walking around our apartment. She was, I want to say she was like three, two and a half, three months old. And she would be getting bored. Like she'd look at one, I take her to look at this picture on the wall and then we'd go look out the window and then we'd look in the mirror and then we'd do something else. And then I'd sit down for a second and I, and she acted bored and I'm like, how can a two month old baby be bored? But she would also not be able to turn away if it was too much. She did not have the capacity to just conk out and go to sleep, which is also what we see with these kids is they like power up. They don't conk out. Right. Yeah. So I, you've answered this a little bit, but you know, I, I, the question was really like, how early do you usually see a child's temperament yeah. display itself? And do you feel like it changes with age or usually stays the same? Mm, that's a really good question. I mean, of course it changes by shifting. I don't know that it completely changes unless Unless, okay, so I'll go back to the beginning of your question. Many people will say they knew from birth. So my daughter, I, I knew something was up because I remember they wheeled her into me and her little eyes were like this. They were on, on focused, laser focused. They weren't like that kind of fuzzy, I was just born kind of idea. She was absolutely looking directly at things. And, and at the time you don't go, ooh, that's temperament. You're just like, huh. <laughs> that's weird. Is that normal? You know, I didn't know. And so a lot of people will say in retrospect, they knew, but even at the moment, they know that their kiddo is not like the other ones. So I give little sleep talks with, to new parent groups here in Seattle, and the babies are usually between two and four months. And it's a group of moms, or it can be groups of parents. And often like they'll be sitting in a circle and the babies are all on their backs on a blanket and the babies are just you know, hanging out and the moms are chatting and eating snacks. And there is always that one parent in the back of the room, furiously kind of bouncing this fussy baby. (laughs) And I know that they're wondering what, what they've done to not have a baby like the other ones. Right. And that really is to me, iconic of the experience of having one of these kids, because you're usually the only one in your group because most kids are the kind of mellow ones go with the flow. And if you have a more intense kiddo, you just feel like a real odd duck. So, you know, you can know quite early, like this one's not sleeping. Like they say they are, they don't want to take a nap. You know, these are the babies that I just talked to somebody and they're like, my two month old has been up for six hours straight. She will not go to sleep. There's, there can be colic. Some of the things that may masquerade as an intense kid. So silent reflux for sure. Is it reflux? Is it temperament? But a lot of kids with a 
tricky temperament also had reflux, mm. right? Or eczema, or like, it seems like systemically they're more sensitive as well. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. It's harder in those first months to tease out what's just a feeding problem. What are, do they just have a milk allergy or is this temperament? But I think a lot of times parents know they'll say stuff like she just, you know, old soul, that's always a marker or they need to be bounced on a ball seems to be a marker because that's a more vigorous kind of input than rocking. Rocking's very gentle. And these kiddos need that like big vigorous input to be able to regulate. The FOMO comment for me is always a, a check mark. Um, you know, but do parents know? I, I think they do kind of, you really do know looking back and then you go, oh yeah, okay. We saw it then when she was three months old or at birth or whatever. Does it change? I think it morphs, you know, but no temperament's hardwired. Like, you know, like I said, my daughter's 27 and of course she's different. (laughs) She's sleeping fine, but you know, that intensity, that level of, of a busy brain, it followed her through school. I mean, like, yes, she's exactly like she was Mm -hmm. when she was smaller. So some of it changes, but I tell parents, I'm like, buckle up because temper, you, you can get them sleeping through the night, but temperament is not going away. Mm-hmm. Right. I always find that it's a challenge when the parent and the child have very different temperaments. I've worked with families who have this like fiery three-year-old and the parents are super chill and they're like, yeah. we don't know how to engage with this child because she's yeah. so different from how we are. Well, being similar is not a picnic either. I have to say <laughs> it's, it's not a picnic. I mean, if you're, if you're, <laughs> and sometimes you learn about your temperament with your kid, because I had that moment where I'm like, why are my kids so intense? And then I was like, oh my God, I think I'm intense. And I had no idea. I had no idea. And so then I would say about those two parents, I'd be like, are they constitutionally mellow? Or were they trained to be mellow and they're mm-hmm. actually quite intense and not, you know, there, there are things in other generations where as children, we just weren't allowed to be right. Young girls were not allowed to be assertive and persistent. And so we got that trained out of us. Mm-hmm. So then when our kids are persistent, we can say, I don't know where they got that, but it's probably buried and, you know, a little bit cut out of our own personalities and then they can trigger that stuff, which is it's on another whole conversation. <laughs> but I have seen like extroverted kids and introverted parents. That's always, or vice versa, which is always hard as well. Yeah. That's called in the research, they call that goodness of fit. Right. Yeah. And how well, how well did the two mesh together? I always ask the parents, I give them the same temperament checklist that I give the kid just to see. The interesting thing is mom always comes out as more intense than dad. Dads are always like, they say they're way low on the scale. And I never, I'm curious about that. That's really funny. I I was just thinking when you said that, you know, you don't learn until you're, you know, you start to think about it. What we've all heard Kim say, you know, sometimes our children are our teachers. And I think that's like a perfect example of like, we learn from them about who we are as individuals, but sometimes these are things you don't know before. You don't know before, or you don't know how to handle it, right? Like, so I wanted them to stand up for themselves. I wanted them to have a voice, all of that, but 
wanting that and then understanding how to navigate it and manage it when maybe you don't have that skill in yourself is super hard. Or when they were losing it. And because for example, I'm, I'm also a sensitive person, their stuff would trigger me sensorily, emotionally. And then I couldn't be that anchor always that they really needed. So it's a system. And that's why just looking at the parent in terms of temperament, or just looking at the child is a real mistake. Like you really have to see the whole, because it is, it's a system that, that works together for sure. So you went over a lot of it, you know, having, you know, their eyes wide open, like your daughter, as soon as she, she was born, yeah. you know, really uh, live wired, but can you give us a little bit like a list of a few characteristics? If our yeah. listeners today are wondering what are the characteristics um, that, you know, you see in these babies that are a little bit sure. more challenging? Of course. So intensity tops the list. And this is not just negative intensity. It's not just meltdowns, although that happens. So these kiddos, when you go to change something with their sleep, they don't cry and fuss. They don't fuss for 10 minutes. It can be hours and they never stop, which is why a lot of these parents cry it out for them as a non-starter because they're like, this will never work for this child. So intensity, and it can be positive intensity. Just everything is a little bit bigger. And I say, everything is a big deal to them. Everything is a big deal. Intensity, sensory sensitivity, hundred percent. And that can be, again, you have to know the modalities. So visual auditory, you can have olfactory sensitivity. I don't see it very much, but visual tactile vestibular, which is your body sense, your body in space, uh, vestibular, and then, or no proprioceptive is body in space. Vestibular is just your body sense. So kids can have different sensory processing systems, and it's good to understand which your child is good at and which they get really overwhelmed by. So intensity, sensitivity, perceptiveness, meaning they do, parents will say they don't miss a thing. You wiggle room at all. You wobble at all in your approach to sleep and they will notice it and they will remember and they will hold you to it. So you have to be on your game with these little guys because they'll pick up on any inconsistency that, that you have. So, you, you know, especially when I work with parents of three-year-olds, I'm like, look, we have got to get way out in front of them. We have to anticipate every move that they're going to make because they're going to, they're going to try to poke and prod persistence goes along with that. So they dig in their heels and they will try to outlast you. Persistence is a fantastic quality. It's just not super convenient when they're little. Adaptability, which means difficulty with transition. They cannot turn on a dime. They need lots of warning. They need lots of time to shift gears. They, they just, they can't go from one thing to another very quickly. And then there's, there's a few other kind of introversion, extroversion is sort of in there, but those are really the the biggies, I would say. Soothability, engagement is another one. They prefer to be with you. These parents will say, I cannot put my child down ever. Like they, or they're not interested in toys. All they want to do is talk to me. So the, that kind of interpersonal engagement, which is exhausting, but it's also amazing because they are getting way more from you than a kiddo that's sitting on the floor playing with a toy. They're getting a lot more information by talking to you. It's just really tiring. Yeah. So I think those, those are the big, the big qualities that we see crop up. And like I said, every single one of those impacts sleep at, at all ages, I would say 
I work all of those elements when we look at implementing some kind of sleep approach. So I, I tell this story a lot of times to my clients about persistence and how it, it is a really frustrating quality when you're dealing with your three-year-old that just like won't relent and doesn't give up. And my daughter as a toddler was super persistent. We used to call her the great negotiator <laughs> and <laughs> she has no future in law, but still, I think she would probably be great at it. Yeah. But then um, it was a few years ago. So she was probably like 11 and we used to take our kids on the weekends to the, like an indoor climbing gym. And yeah. so she would be like halfway up the wall and I'm more of a, like, I can't be bothered, whatever kind of person, but she just would like stop. And I would be like, are you ready to come down? She's like, no. And I would say to my husband there next to me, I'd be like, what is going on? And he's like, you know, she doesn't quit. You know, she will persist no matter mm -hmm. what. And sure enough, she would sit there for like 20 minutes, just hanging about plotting her next move. And then she would get herself all the wow. way to the top and she didn't quit. She would always make it there, but she mm -hmm. just needed to like do it in her own way. And I find that that, is a helpful way to frame it to parents, especially with toddlers who are really struggling with just that intensity to mm -hmm. know that someday that persistence is going to help them be successful in school. Right. It's going to help them, you know, manage different interpersonal things right. and it's going to, it could play out in sports for sure. No, it's really, it's really true. And it's really hard. One of the biggest struggles with working on sleep with these kiddos is I say, you've got to pick your battles, but fight the ones you pick. Because if you say no more co-sleeping, that has got to be it come hell or high water. Or if you don't want to read another book, there is no more book. There is no, okay, just for tonight. They do not know just for tonight. And tomorrow night they'll go, well, what's different about tonight? And you will not have a good answer for that. Right. <laughs> well, isn't that parenting across the board? Oh. Like, I want the toy. I want the toy. I want the yeah. ice cream. I want the ice cream. Yes. Oh, I just have the ice cream. Yeah. So spend yeah. 20 minutes about no, right. Or the cookie with my daughter. No, no, no cookie. Okay, fine. Here's a cookie. Just yeah. Stop. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> I wish the that, worst. that's the, that's the one thing I wish I had known is that giving in it actually will make your life harder. It just really does. Yeah. You're s slapping a bandaid on something that is literally going to make it worse. Because for these kiddos, I really now know it. I didn't know it then. They actually get thrown by limits that are wobbly. Like they really, really need firm, predictable, consistent rules. Because if you start going back and forth or you start saying, okay, just for tonight, I honestly think that cognitively it really throws them. And then they have more meltdowns or they push harder or whatever. Cause I, th I think they really need almost a ridiculous level of predictability and almost rigidity in some of the limits. And that's one thing, like I said, I was trying to be a very flexible, responsive mom. I was trying to go, I'm going to respond to their cues. I'm going to understand who they are and what they need. And now looking back, given what I know about temperament, I really do think they would have done well, who knows? You, you can't tell, but I suspect that on some things they would have done better if I had just had some really clear no's that, that stayed the same, you know, that really, that really stuck, but it's super hard if you're with a toddler and it's the eighth meltdown of the day and it's gone on for two hours. I mean, I tell parents, I'm like, look, you're only human. What, what are you going to do? So 
all you can do is your best in some of these situations because it's a handful. It's a huge handful. Yeah. Well, and so I guess that brings up another good question that we had, which is if you can speak to the comparison that that happens between parents for children who are these very alert, very intense kids versus parents who aren't, or even in a family where maybe you have one who is so intense and then one who isn't. Yeah. Um, And sometimes if that less intense child comes first, they set us up for all these expectations for your child who's now like totally alive. Well, the other way is weird too, right? It's all hard. It's all hard. It's it's never easy. I think, especially when it comes to sleep, I get it all the time. So I have a parent with a clearly alert on little one and they're like, well, my friends have a, I, I, I just talked to somebody with a, I think they had like a, a four week old or a, Mm -hmm. or a seven week old. And, and, you know, granted we might not have been talking about temperament per se, but they're like, oh yeah, we have friends who's, who's eight week old is sleeping 12 hours straight and they did X, Y, or Z. And I'm like, look, people with mellow kids think that it's something they did to, to be successful with sleep. Parents of mellow kids could pretty much stand on their heads. And I think their kid would do well, right? Like it doesn't, it, it, I don't think it has much to do with what the parent did or didn't do, but they always say that it did. Oh, well, my kid's sleeping 10 hours straight and I just did blah, blah, blah. Like, look, no, that's just who your kid is. right? Um, In fact, the research shows that is pretty clear that only 25% of kids have a sleep problem. That means we're prescribing sleep training for a hundred percent of kids when only 25% will ever have a problem, right? The rest of them were doing sleep training and thinking that the sleep training is working, but really probably that kid would have slept well, no matter what. So there are these comparisons like, well, is it because of something I'm doing? And once you tell people like, no, your child is wired this way and, and it has nothing to do with what you are or aren't doing, you know? Sleep is hard because of who your child is, not because of something that you're doing. With two kids in a family, there's no easy combination. I've had people with an intense first child and a mellow second child. I've had ones with a mellow first child and an intense second one. The hardest part is people worry that the mellow kid gets somehow cut short because you're spending all this time with the intense one. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is literally no good answer for that. I, I, I mean, both of my kids were intense. So, and they were intense in different ways. So I, that's, all, <laughs> that's what I can speak to. I, I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard. I often tell parents when they are telling me about their friend whose baby slept 12 hours, I'm always like, well, sometimes you just need different friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, friends with also really intense children so that they can commiserate. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's, it's really true. And I also say to them, like, just because that baby's sleeping that long right now, talk to me at four months or talk to me. Yeah. Chances are they will not. I mean, there are great sleeping babies, obviously. I never really see them ever. I, I work on a women's healthcare platform. So I've talked to hundreds of parents of new parents and out of hundreds of phone calls, I've probably had three where the people were worried that their baby was sleeping too much. <laughs> and, and all the rest of them have been these kinds of kids, right? These alert, you know, intense children. 
So yeah, I wish I could get all those parents in a room because every single one of them feel like they're the only ones on the planet. And, and that breaks my heart. I can mention that I did do a big large-scale parent survey about temperament and sleep. And the parents of the more intense kids not only were way more physically and emotionally exhausted, self-rated exhausted, but they rated their competence as a parent much lower than kids who were more mellow. And that also broke my heart because these parents are working so hard and they feel like they're doing a crappy job at it. And that made me really sad and also very motivated to keep doing this work so that they know that you may not be seeing the exact outcomes of your parenting now, but you will, right? The payoff is going to come later. Often when they go to school, these kids are, they really take off. I, I think every parent, if you're you know, listening to this, if you have a child like this, just pat yourself on the back because this is not for the faint of heart. These kiddos ask for a higher level of parenting and almost all parents are ponying up. That parent survey, did you publish that? I haven't yet. I did a poster that I presented at a conference on it. I found, you know, there was lots of, lots of interesting things uh, about it. Probably too much information. I should mention that the research calls them difficult, which I hate. Mm. <laughs> the research only focuses on the, the fussy, unsuitable, unsettled aspect they never look at whether there's positive stuff that accompanies that, those traits. So a difficult temperament has been associated with all kinds of negative outcomes, but they're, they're not looking at any of the other aspects that could also inform a, a variety of things. So one thing I looked for was would kids who would be considered difficult by research standards also hire on a variety of positive traits? And they were perceptiveness, persistence, sensitivity. In older kids, traits like perfectionism and ethical standards and awareness of social dynamics. So these, you know, some of that was true. And then I found out too, that temperament really predicted way more difficulty with sleep training. So parents of the intense kids had tried a, a greater number of strategies with less success. So it's not like these parents are not trying to work on sleep. They are trying and stuff isn't working. At least the like crying approaches aren't. Speaking of which, we wanted to just ask you a few questions about what sleep training looks like with these uh, yeah. kids with really intense temperament. What Perfect. would be different uh, with these kids versus the other ones? Yeah. If you can just talk a little bit about sure. that. So I think mostly we have to consider the parents and that parents come into the process of working on sleep more than exhausted, more than a little shell-shocked by the amount of effort and crying there's already been. So we have to be really sensitive about how to move forward and possibly go a little slower with them, break it down into smaller pieces. These kiddos are going to push back. There's more to do when I say when they get to be in a bed, because there's more sort of transition. There are more activities you can do ahead of time to get them physically and mentally ready because at three and four is where their brains start taking over, right? They, they start getting that busy brain. That's a separate task, but sleep training, we really stay ahead of their second wind. So getting enough nap time, well-timed naps is absolutely critical. Well-timed bedtime, absolutely critical. These kids have a hair trigger second wind. And once you're in it, you're just toast. So staying ahead of the second wind, and then knowing that the telling parents like, look, it's going to look the first night, like it's not working. Just don't just, 
I call it the first pancake, just, just right off the first night. It's going to be a rodeo and don't even think about it. You're going to think we're crazy. The first night's going to be horrible. Second night should be a little bit better. Third night should be a little bit better. But the other piece is that it never goes in a straight line with these kids. They'll, they'll be going okay. And then there'll be one horrible night or something that was working stops working and something else gets better, but then that gets worse or it doesn't improve, doesn't improve, doesn't improve until like day nine. And then everything kicks into place. As long as something is moving and shifting, that's a good sign. If it really stalls, then we have to dial back and look at, you know, is there something physiological going on? But as long as something is moving at all times, keep just keep going. And then it's the same thing I said before of like, pick your battles, but fight the ones you pick. So if you're going to say, we're going to work on bedtime and all wake ups before midnight, then you have to do that. You cannot wiggle back and forth. You've got to just like push, push, push through. That's a big ask for some of these parents, because by the time they get to me anyway, I, when I say, Hey, it could look a little worse before it gets better. They're like, I can't, I cannot do worse. I can't, I just don't have it. And then, then we have to like, uh, that's what, that's a hard spot to be in. Right. I mean, yeah. I think we, we see this as well. It's like, you know, it's human nature to not reach out for help until you're at a point of desperation. And yeah. I always wish that parents would, would pull the trigger a little bit sooner Yeah. because then they're at like their most depleted self. Yeah. Oh, it's but the unfortunately, worst to get to that place and really say like, now I need help. I can't do this on my own, yeah. which is a really hard thing to admit. I think as a parent, yeah. A lot of parents come to us with a fair amount of shame that they couldn't yeah. figure this out themselves, which is yeah. that's not even what it's about. Right. And so now they're so exhausted by the time they're, you know, trying to yeah. start this. They're exhausted. And there I've had experiences with, um, you know, parents who are also into a zone where they're sort of chronically angry too, which is also right. they're in that, they're that desperate kind of frustrated space, which is understandable and super hard. So sometimes you have to take, take the pot off the boil. I say, we got to bring the temperature down so that the parent can think clearly, because again, these kiddos are perceptive. And if you're angry, they are going to feel it and they're going to be reacting to it. Um, the other piece for the parents of live wires is you have to remember that they're especially averse to seeking help because they feel like someone's say, oh, you just have to let them cry it out. Oh, you're just, you're responding too much. You're helicoptering. You just have to let that baby cry it out. And they know that that's not going to work. So they're kind I think a lot of parents are like, why should I even ask? Cause they're not going to understand my kid. And that's really true. I mean, I, I really believe that. I think that many, many coaches, pediatricians, they, they have no idea about these kids, even though there's so many of them, um, they don't, they don't treat these kids like they need a separate thing. And so I think if parents knew that they could contact a coach who wouldn't say, oh, you just have to let them cry, they might be more, more able to, to reach out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had one somewhat recently, which fortunately it went really well. And I think it went so well because the parents made no attempts at sleep training yeah. before. And I said, yeah. she is paying attention. She is watching everything that you're doing. And as a result, when they followed through, she caught on like that, like after the first night, she did amazing, 
but that yeah. was because there weren't multiple times of her learning. Yeah. Mommy and daddy don't, don't follow through there. Right. You know, I can eventually get them to do X, Y, or Z. Right. Well, that's the <laughs> other funny thing is when people say, well, a, how much crying can there be? Or how long do you think this is going to take? And I tell them, I'm like, look, generally within two weeks, we're on track. Um, but I said, these kids are nothing if not exceptions to the rule. And I have had, I've also had a couple of clients where I, you know, every time I'm off a consult, I'm like, oh boy, I hope this is going to work. You know, like I never know. It's, it's really hard for me. Um, and a couple of times the child has gotten on board in like, there was one client that I was like, oh boy, I hope this works. And I'm not kidding. In three nights, that child was sleeping through the night. Yep. Parents were, parents were like, why did we do this earlier? It's like, well, because you didn't know how long, how they were, I didn't know how he was going to take it, but that child was just ready. He was just hundred percent ready. So you, you never know. Yeah. Is, no. is the moral of the story. <laughs> so true. Uh, so I feel like you've given us like so much great information about these, you know, super intense children and, mm -hmm. and what is so different about them versus, you know, what people expect their child to maybe be like, right. um, you do have a whole nother area of expertise, which I wanted to just touch on briefly because yeah. I do think that this is valuable information for parents, mm -hmm. which is that you look at the research on sleep training and, yeah. you know, parents ask all of us all the time, like, what does the research say about this? And I think that your mm. perspective on this is really yeah. helpful. So even though it feels like a little bit of a tangent, I think it's valuable information. So sure. maybe just kind of speak to what you've learned in looking at the research on sleep mm. training. Well, I, I honestly I could talk for hours, so I'll try to hit the highlights because it depends all on that in like five minutes. That's yeah, all. right. I know. I know. Okay. That, buckle up. Here we go. Like, right. Um, Can you really do that all in five yeah. minutes anyway? No. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of an upshot, um, which is that the, what I do is I compare the advice that's in books and in some of the popular things like taking care of babies, some of the internet things to the research. And even though these books say, oh, well, this is research-based. Some, some of their approaches are not at all. So most books are telling parents that they can start actively sleep training using crying-based approaches as early as three to four months. And I can equivocally say there is literally no research on that. There is further no research on the need or benefit of starting at that age versus waiting until they're ready. The vast majority of research on sleep training was done on, uh, the minimum was infants six months, but I would say most of the research is on toddlers and preschoolers. So we have sort of backdated the research to say, well, if it's okay for a three-year-old, it must be okay for a three-month-old. And that just is bonkers, right? That just doesn't make any sense. So um, a lot of what research has found is misinterpreted by popular advice. It's even sort of misinterpreted by research itself. So for example, it will say, oh, extinction, which is crying it out, was shown to significantly improve nighttime sleep. And all of us go, ooh, okay. Parents might think, great, the baby will sleep all the way through the night. But when you really look at the research, like what did significant mean? We're talking statistics. We're not talking practical real world significance. So when you look at the, for example, one study that showed significant improvement, 
night wakings maybe went from two to one and a half. I, I don't even know what to say about that. Or, <laughs> what's a half? <laughs> what's a half a night waking, right? Well, it's remember, I mean, research deals in averages. Right. So, so or they'll say, oh, it, significant, it resulted in significantly longer nighttime sleep. And when you look at that, after the kids went through a full battery of crying it out, nighttime sleep, there was maybe 20 minutes more. And if you ask any parent on the street, hey, would you do crying it out for 20 minutes more sleep? They'd say, heck no, that's not worth it. But that's what the research says. And so then people take significantly improved sleep and they use that in their writing without mentioning what does significant actually mean. We have to remember that research deals in averages, meaning there were many kiddos for whom it didn't work at all in, in the study. And interestingly, the general percentage of children, you know, samples that it didn't work for overlaps perfectly with what we think the prevalence of an, a, a live wire temperament is. So my theory is all those kids for whom that didn't work in the study were these alert sensitive kids, right? Yeah. So, so the, looking at the research is a little, I always say it's a little like emperor's new clothes, which is the more I look, the less I find, but, but there's been so much done and so much written and it's been kind of codified and set in stone that now it's really hard to critique it because it's a whole thing. But really, when you look at it in terms of how does this apply to families, it really doesn't because a lot, almost all the time in research, sleep interventions happen within the context of support. It's almost like a coaching context, right? They get evaluation, assessment, an individualized plan, lots of follow-up, which we all know is very different from a parent, a home alone with a book, right? When they do real world research, like how are parents doing alone with a book, the success rates are much, much, much lower. Hmm. I know. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the other thing that I've heard you say that's so interesting is that a lot of these studies are done, uh, you know, on such a wide range of ages of children. Like they're looking at, you know, six month olds versus 36 month olds. And there's just yeah. nothing that's similar about a six month old and a toddler. No. And they don't break it out by age. So they don't say, oh, well, the infants did this. The toddlers did that. No, there was one study, a famous one, one that's used all the time four to 52 months. And they don't say how many four month olds there are they, they just will give you the, the mean, the, the average of the sample. So you can kind of get a sense. There was one that's three weeks to three years and we don't, they don't break it how out. How is that age. even allowed? Like, how do you do a research like with you such a wide it. range? Good question. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't mind the range if they said, okay, the three to six month olds, this was their success rate. The six to 12 month olds, this was their success rate. The, like that, they don't, they just lump that, they lump it all together. And so we really don't, often we don't even know how many actual infants were in the study. So if it says four to 52 months, maybe there was one four month old and the next oldest kid was 12 months. We don't know. They don't mm -hmm. have to report it. Yeah, the, the lack of precision in terms of development in these studies are a little bonkers. And then the research on no negative side effects is just horrible. I don't want, that could be its own whole thing. 
they basically ask parents and they'll basically, a lot of times they'll say, so how is your relationship with your child after you did this cry it out sleep training? Well, I mean, duh, parents, of course, are going to say it's fine. Like, <laughs> you know, what kind, what parent would say, you know, actually, I think, I don't think it's good right now. You know, no, because number one, they're sleeping. They're automatically going to be feeling better. And there's something called social desirability bias, where they're not going to say that they've wrecked their relationship with their kid by doing sleep training. So that's how they assess negative side effects. Um, also, the idea is that just because they haven't found it for an average of the kids doesn't mean that no children at any time could be negatively affected. Um, I always say hello to parents. I mean, and just having older children, I feel like this is a perspective that I have at this point. Like mm -hmm. there's so many things that go into who your child becomes and, and their, and your relationship with them that are completely unrelated to how you taught them to sleep or didn't teach yeah. them to sleep. Yes, you know? that's true so too. I feel like it's a hard thing to say, like, this is a direct correlation because yeah there are a million things that make up who your oh, yeah. child is. Oh yeah. Long-term for sure. Um, I guess my problem with the way they're looking for negative side effects is not to say it's harmful always, but I also think you can't say it's never ever harmful for any kid at any age with any amount of crying, right? We all know that there are situations where for that child, especially intense sensitive ones, like we have to know that these kids get blown out of the water much more easily. So we, we do have to move forward carefully. Um, and, and I tell parents like, look, you can't say any crying is bad because you can't, I say you can't sneak up on these kids. There's not going to be anything you're going to change that they won't notice. So they're, they're going to cry. But if you're right there and you're allowed to calm them down, bring them back to a state of of you know being okay and you're present with them that's a completely different thing than a two-month-old you know this this advice is out there that you take an eight-week-old you put them in the crib you close the door and you don't go in until morning I don't understand how that's a thing yeah well, thank you so much for yes. sharing your expertise thank you, and your thank you. wisdom with us and oh my all goodness. our listeners. We really appreciate it. And so fun. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Of thank course. You for thank being you here guys. With us. Okay.